Section 19 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 6, The League and the Armada. Chapter 1, Spain and the League. Philip II, meanwhile, was occupied with larger schemes for the aggrandizement of the Spanish monarchy. At the beginning of the revolt of the Netherlands, his cautious temper had led him to resolve to overcome the rebel provinces before proceeding to his greater undertakings. Now that the Prince of Orange was removed, and Alexander of Parma was winning town after town, it seemed to Philip that the revolt must soon be extinguished. The only hope of the Netherlands lay in foreign assistance. Elizabeth was not prepared to help them, but they still had hopes from France. In the beginning of 1585, an embassy from the United Provinces appeared at the French court and offered to Henry III the sovereignty as it had been exercised by Charles V. They begged to be united to the French crown. Henry listened to their request, but at last declined it. Still, his conduct was alarming to Philip II. Moreover, Catherine de Medici had brought forward claims to the throne of Portugal, for which she demanded satisfaction from Philip. Philip was of opinion that the best thing he could do to advance the power of Spain was to check the power of the French court and obtain an influence over French affairs. The state of things in France invited him to interfere. Henry III himself was unpopular among his nobles. He surrounded himself with worthless favorites and spent his days in effeminate amusements with these mignons of the court. He delighted to appear in public in feminine robes of great magnificence, with pearls hanging from his ears in a style of oriental profligacy and luxury. He had no children, and the death of the Duke of Anjou excited men's minds about the question of the succession. The nearest heir of the blood royal was Henry, King of Navarre, whose marriage with the king's sister Margaret had been the occasion of the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. Henry of Navarre was a Huguenot, and the possibility of his succession was alarming to the French Catholics, and equally so to Philip of Spain. The religious struggle, as we have seen, was more violent and offered sharper contrasts in France than it did in other countries. The French Catholics saw, with daily increasing disgust, the toleration given to the Huguenots. The idea of an Huguenot king was intolerable to them. The Catholic party gathered round the Duke of Guise, and it was easy for Philip to stir it into activity. The alliance between Philip and the Guises was formed in January 1585. It is known as the League. Its object was to prevent a heretic from becoming King of France by securing the succession of the Cardinal of Bourbon, a younger brother of King Antony of Navarre and so uncle to Henry of Navarre. Further, they agreed to extirpate Protestantism, not only in France, but also in the Netherlands. In April, the League published its manifesto, setting forth that subjects are not bound to recognize a prince who is not a Catholic. The interests of the nobles, the clergy, and the towns were all provided for. 
the Guises enlisted against the government the selfish feelings of every class. Had Henry III possessed any force of character or any power of political insight, he would have made common cause with the Huguenot and the Netherlanders to repel this outrage upon the crown. As it was, however, his religious feelings overpowered all others, he became a confederate with the Guises and revoked in July of 1585 the Edicts of Toleration to the Protestants. There was no longer any hope to the Netherlands of putting themselves under the protection of France. Meanwhile, Alexander of Parma had been steadily advancing in his plans. On the result of the siege of Antwerp depended the fate of the provinces of Flanders and Brabant. Parma strained every nerve to ensure its surrender, and carried out his plans for its capture with a perseverance and resoluteness which nothing could shake. The siege of Antwerp was long memorable in the annals of sieges. Antwerp, the great commercial capital of Europe, stands at the mouth of the Scheldt, where the river broadens into an estuary of the sea dotted with small islands. The strong places on the landward side were in Parma's hands, but Antwerp was too well fortified to be taken by storm, and it was impossible to blockade it so long as the river remained open. The flat-bottomed boats of the Hollanders could take advantage of any condition of the tide and bring supplies to the beleaguered city. Parma, however, made himself master of the banks of the Scheldt, and built forts at such places as secured him the command of the navigation of the river. He then proceeded, during the winter of 1584, to build a bridge across the stream. The Scheldt was here sixty feet deep and eight hundred yards broad. To bridge such a channel seemed to the besieged an impossible folly. But the Spaniards beginning from either bank slowly drove in their piles so firmly that their work withstood the huge blocks of ice that in the winter months rolled down the stream. When the piers had been built as far as was possible, the middle part was made sure by a permanent bridge of boats. In February 1585, the Scheldt was closed. In Antwerp, however, lived an Italian engineer, Giambelli, who proposed a means of breaking through this barrier. He took two ships, in each of which he built a marble chamber filled with gunpowder, over which was placed a pile of every kind of heavy missile. These ships were floated down the Scheldt, but their meaning was disguised by some small fire ships which sailed in front of them. The Spaniards spent their energies in warding off the fire ships, and the other two struck against the bridge. In one, the match burnt out without reaching the powder, but the other took fire with a terrific explosion. A thousand Spanish soldiers were hurled into the air, and a breach of two hundred feet was made in the bridge. Confusion and panic terror struck the hearts of the Spaniards, but the men of Antwerp could not use their success. The signal was not given to the Zeeland fleet, which was waiting out at sea. No relief came, and Alexander of Parma, recovering at once his presence of mind, set to work with desperate energy to repair the breach. In three days, the blockade was again established, and Parma awaited the end. Another desperate sally was made by the Netherlanders who succeeded in carrying one of the Spanish forts, 
but they could not maintain themselves there against the valor of the Spanish troops when they were under their heroic leader's eye. The Netherlanders were driven back, and with their failure, Antwerp's last hope was gone. The city capitulated on August 17, 1585. There was to be a general amnesty, but only the Catholic religion was to be tolerated. Those who refused to conform were allowed two years to wind up their affairs and quit the city. When France had refused all help to the Netherlands and had admitted Spanish influence within its borders, it became evident to Elizabeth and her ministers that English help could no longer be refused. It was clear that England would soon be attacked by Philip II, and that every effort must be made to keep him employed. The states offered the sovereignty to Elizabeth as they had done before. She would not, however, accept this, as she would not openly countenance rebellion. She rather wished to give the states only just as much assistance as would enable them to maintain themselves against Spain, and she wished to help them at as little cost as possible. Months were spent in haggling between the two powers. At last Elizabeth, though she refused even the title of protector of the Netherlands, agreed to furnish 5,000 footmen and 1,000 horse, but demanded the surrender of Briel and Vlissingen into her hands as guarantees for the payment of her expenses. The Netherlanders were compelled sadly to submit to these hard terms, and at the end of 1585, the Earl of Leicester landed in Holland as leader of the English troops. Leicester was not, however, fit to oppose so skillful a general and politician as Alexander Farnese. He committed a blunder immediately after his landing by transgressing the Queen's commands and accepting the supremacy over the government of the Netherlands under the title of Governor-General. Elizabeth was highly indignant and wrote angry letters to the States. Parma, to gain time, had opened negotiations with Elizabeth. It is certain that the Queen was not indisposed to peace with Spain, and could she have secured it, would have sacrificed the cause of the Netherlands. She listened to proposals for handing over the cautionary towns to Parma. Rumors of these negotiations spread among the Netherlanders and kindled doubts of Elizabeth's sincerity. Men were afraid that their experience of the Duke of Anjou would be repeated in Elizabeth. The negotiations came to nothing, but they prevented England from helping the states with vigor, and gave Philip time to prepare for a great blow against England. This was made more necessary for him by the bold exploits of Sir Francis Drake, who at the end of 1585 set sail with a fleet of 25 vessels for the Spanish main. There he captured, plundered, and destroyed the wealthy and important cities of San Domingo and Cartagena, he coasted along the shores of Cuba and Florida, plundering as he went, and in July 1586 returned to England laden with booty. The Spaniards exclaimed, Drake has played the dragon. Philip was alarmed for the security of the Spanish trade with its colonies in the New World, on which much of the resources of Spain depended. It was of the highest importance to him that this English aggression should be checked. His plan was a great naval invasion from Spain and the Netherlands at the same time. The English Catholics, he calculated, would rise on behalf of Mary. Under such a general as Parma, the capture of London would be easy. Elizabeth was to be put to death. Parma could marry Mary, 
and govern England in the interests of Spain and Catholicism. While Philip was revolving this design, Leicester was doing nothing to cause a diversion in the Netherlands. In spite of his presence, Parma captured Grave and Neuss. Leicester laid siege to Zutphen and Parma marched to its defense. In the battle that ensued, Leicester's nephew, Sir Philip Sidney, received a wound of which he died. Great was the grief of Europe at his death, and men of every nation mourned for him. Though he died at the early age of thirty-two, his pure and noble spirit had left its mark upon his times. He was a brave warrior, an accomplished gentleman, a famous scholar, a wise politician. He was a man of lofty soul and deep religious feelings. All who met him owned the charm of his manner and his ready appreciation of every kind of excellence. He was the common rendezvous of worth in his time. His character still stands out as the type of English chivalry in Elizabeth's England. Leicester achieved nothing in the Netherlands. The states were dissatisfied with him, and he returned to England in November 1586. Elizabeth needed all her counsellors around her. Philip II had secured France by the complications of her internal affairs and was now threatening England in earnest. The Netherlands seemed to be giving way to the Prince of Parma. England was fearful of Catholic plots, and the adherents of Mary were raising their heads in expectation of the promised help of Spain. End of section 19